Thank you. I try. <laughs> what is it? Eagle? Eagle? <laughs> yep. Which I think someone online. Can Sam the Eagle? I, yeah, I think someone online um, uh, once referred to Jim as Sam the Eagle. He is Sam the Eagle. Absolutely. Is, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's only right. Exactly. I think we found our bumper. Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. My first Murphy, it's crazy. We finally caught up. New Year's 1979. We are solving things left and right. Mullins and Milberger, P.I. Pew, pew. <gasps> and on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode nine, Roasted. Welcome to my first episode of Murphy Brown I ever saw. It's such a special moment for everyone. My first Murphy. It's crazy. We finally caught up. <laughs> I've talked about this on the show before. I can't believe we finally got here, but I did not start watching the season or the series until season two. But something I did not realize is last episode, the day after it aired, became one year since the pilot of Murphy Brown. Hmm. Interesting. This episode aired November 20th. The last episode aired November 13th. Hmm. So I guess I, I technically didn't even start watching it to literally a year after it aired. I mean, that sounds about right for a new show. Yeah. I, I have no idea why. I, I, all I can think of is I was watching something else. I mean, you were also, it makes sense for your demographic. You were still <laughs> ahead of the curve. <laughs> it's not like you were late for your demographic. Just to remind people I was 12. Yeah. No one was expecting was like, why are the 12 year olds in New Jersey not watching Murphy Brown right now? Oh, what my the heck? God. Jeez, guys. What are we doing wrong? Like nobody was thinking that we are not writing for the 12 year olds. <laughs> Keep it going. <laughs> nobody was thinking that. Little um, did they know. No. But yay. What a special time. I it feels right that you started on a Norm and Tom episode. Doesn't it, though? It feels like coming home. Just for reference, what we mean is that this episode, directed by Barnett Kelman, of course, was written by our friends of the pod, Norm Gunsenhauser and Tom Seeley. Yes. And so we're going to start to get, as we talked about last week, there were a lot of freelancers. We're kind of mm-hmm. getting back into sort of the main uh, writers that we know from the writer's room who mm-hmm. were necessarily freelance, even though Denise and Cy, I know it's on paper that they were freelance, but it's just weird. Not in our like, hearts. Not in our hearts. And apparently not in the writer's room hearts either. <laughs> apparently, yes. Or I should say Warner Brothers contracts, really. Yes, 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 yes. They may have given all of the money in the budget to Walter Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because as we were about to get to, there is no song in this episode. So they weren't paying any music rights or anything because it all went to Cronkite. Yeah, maybe, yes, all the music rights money went to Cronkite. <laughs> now, Which, um, it's a good get. It's, it's a great get. Mm-hmm. It's it's for this particular episode. Yes, it's so perfect. I see mm-hmm. why they would want to have this particular person uh, to give people some context. He had actually retired on Valentine's Day, 1980. So mm-hmm. he was not on TV as an anchor, but still had the prestige of being the guy. Well, and uh, Diane gave us a little insight on that. Did you want to read that? 
Yes, that's why we were laughing. So <laughs> uh, we asked Diane if she had any background about how they got someone like Walter Cronkite in the second season of a show to be on it. They were thrilled, obviously, to have Walter Cronkite. I love this. Diane said, it's the ultimate stamp of approval for a show about journalists from the man who was called the most trusted man in America. Mm. Uh, but the most trusted man in America drives a hard bargain. Uh, <laughs> Which, you know what? The, Get it, Walter. Get yeah, it. That's part me and part Diane, by the way. That's not yep, an exact yep. quote from her. But <laughs> it's a half a quote. So he wanted $10,000 for this part. Uh, now, to give you guys some context, all the other journalists who had been on the show, I mean, not that many so far, obviously like Connie Chung, mm -hmm. had been offered scale, had accepted scale, and had donated the money to charity. Mm -hmm. So this was something something very different. And um, Warner Brothers ultimately approved it. And Diane said that they joked that they should have a ticker under his opening counting out how many dollars each word he spoke was worth. I mean, I do have to say... And I know I know we're all joking about this, yes. but the opening is worth its weight in gold. It is. I having seen a lot of journalists on Murphy Brown and a lot of mm -hmm. journalists play themselves in general. He's the best I've ever seen. Mm hmm. He's really, really. I, I will say Irving drives a hard second in this episode. He is pretty good. You're right. He is pretty good. Um, but I'm also putting this into comparison that Walter Cronkite has had been at this time already on an episode of Mary Tyler Moore in 1974. Mm hmm. He was really good in that. And apparently he also appeared on Captain Kangaroo in 1968. Oh, I loved Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> That's so sweet. Oh, I love that so much. Now, he would eventually go on to be in several episodes of Murphy Brown. One is a voiceover. Mm -hmm. And then eventually in 97, he was in a room in Burbank. Because obviously we can tell that this is a camera crew. They, you know, I'm guessing it's his office. In New York, probably. But they'd sent a camera crew to him. He did not come to the set. Shall we get into it? Let's get into it. Well, speaking of Walter Cronkite, our episode opens on something rather unusual, which re-watching it, I forgot how abruptly it starts into this, mm -hmm. which gave me a, a definite kickback to how many people probably got duped into thinking this was a real moment on television where there was like a breaking thing coming in and there's Walter Cronkite sitting. Yeah, it it's looks like documentary yeah it's very legit walter cronkite's just kind of like is he's like perched on a desk essentially and he is sitting in his chair and it turns out he's he's talking about when he first met this young reporter named jim dial which of course made my heart flutter many many times and mm -hmm. what i love is that walter cronkite with this kind of laugh about this young upstart says that he told him he was too skinny for tv but with that voice could work in radio and then cut to the 1956 democratic convention and every major newscaster was there and they were all angling. And this young reporter, Jim Dial, was the first to get an interview with Jack Kennedy after he did not get the nomination. And Walter Cronkite then says, this time I introduced myself to him, which gave me a little like internal fist bump for precocious young, young Jim. When man landed on the moon, Walter Cronkite starts talking about how he felt his voice waver and he was overcome with emotion. And he says, all I could think of was, if I lose it now, Dial will never let me hear the end of it. And that's the way it was. And we fade into the bullpen. And for those who maybe aren't as familiar with Mr. Walter Cronkite, as we said, the most trusted man in America, which he was, the mo most famous clips that I feel like people would know would be the Kennedy assassination and the yeah. moon landing. Exactly. The moon landing 
is the moment. And also there's this thing about when Walter Cronkite says, and that's the way it was. That's his, his sign of that most trusted man in America. Like, yeah, it was really cool. It gave me a lot of shivers for for Jim Dial. It's such yeah. a legitimizing moment for this character. And it supports everything we've talked about so far with his character and his history and his proficiency. And it we, we said this in an interview recently, but we could not have gotten to this episode of Jim without all the foundation that's been laid so far. Yeah. And this is just solidifying everything that we've come to believe and trust in Jim and what he was and what he stands for as a reporter gives Mm -hmm. him context so you go oh Mm -hmm. well if he is saying these things about jim he he must be you know one of the greats yeah well and i would argue that of all the characters in this show because this show as we've talked about does straddle the line between being in its own world and our world Mm -hmm. as far as what's really going on and what we're referencing jim is the one character that you I would argue that we all believe really did exist in our own world because of his history, because of the references. Like You believe that Jim was at these things more than any of the other characters. And so to have someone like Walter Cronkite come on and talk about Jim, it's, it's very affirming. It's like, yep, no, he was there. He's real. I get it. <laughs> He's very familiar. So we find ourselves in the, we're in the bullpen, but coming around to the right of the elevator is Murphy and Frank. And they are arguing about the conservative Redskins offense and how that's not going to go very well. And as they come past the elevator, Murphy stops in her tracks, seeing that there's a new secretary at her desk. And I didn't realize until this moment that this is the first secretary moment we've had in a while. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's been a while since we had like a particular secretary moment. What I love is we're reminded of her history of secretaries with her. He's an axe murderer. I know he is. And Murphy is overcome. She just she can't handle it right now. So Frank offers to go say hello to him and and investigate. He walks up and there's a very young, handsome man in a suit who is very intelligent. He knows the show. He respects it. He speaks very eloquently about it. He seems very competent. Frank's like, okay, well, great. Nice to meet you. Takes off, heads back to Murphy, meets Murphy at the coffee and starts talking about it. Oh, no, I think he's going to be great. And he's lauding him. And we cut over to the secretary. And the secretary has leaned over to a compact mirror and is putting on some lipstick. Lauren, I thought you might have some thoughts on this moment. Yes, and we've sort of talked about this a bit in other episodes, that there are a few jokes, whether it's said on the show or is actually in the script, where the word transvestite is used. Now, Mm -hmm. of course, we don't know what this character identifies as, Mm -hmm. whereas we have Eddie Izzard, who at this time in 1987 came out calling himself a transvestite himself and now refers to himself as transgender because words change. Mm -hmm. So I thought it might be a good idea to have someone who's trans speak for themselves on this subject. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to read a little bit from Eddie Izzard's biography, if everyone doesn't mind. It's a very short thing. And I actually recommend that you read his biography. It's called Believe Me, A Memoir of Love, Death and Jazz Chickens. (laughs) If you know Eddie Izzard, you you would get that. Oh, you know. Um, Yes. And actually, I specifically would recommend the audiobook. He's wonderful. <laughs> it's amazing. But since he's a fellow dyslexic, he tends to go off topic a lot. And um, there's new stuff in the audiobook that's not in the actual book. So this jumps a little bit to 1991. You should know that Eddie Izzard was out in 87 to his family, but not in his act. Mm-hmm. And he wrote, I played the comedy circuit up to the end of 1991. And then I decided I had to leave. I had to start playing theaters. In 1992, a big UK newspaper, The Observer, wanted to do an in-depth piece about me. I thought, 
I'm just going to announce that I'm a transvestite. Once it's announced, I can't back out of it. And I'll just have to see whether my career gets destroyed or not. I had hacked and climbed my way to a point where a big newspaper was finally going to write about me. And I knew that once I said, I am a transvestite, it would be out there. And once it was out there, I couldn't put it back in the box. I did not want to be in a box any longer. I did not like the feeling of living a lie. Shortly after the article came out, I did my first gig, wearing makeup, heels, and a skirt. That night at the club, my new material directly addressed the fact that I was in girl mode. I knew that if I did material about being transgender, transvestite, the audience should be able to go there. He's wearing lipstick, he's wearing heels, he's talking about being transvestite, transgender. I get it. But then I thought, what happens if I start talking about the evil monsters on Doctor Who, the Daleks? I realized that if they see a guy in lipstick and he's talking about Daleks and they're still laughing, then I have a career. If not, I don't have a career. It was as simple as that. It was a real roll of the dice, a key moment for me. So I talked about being a transvestite, and that worked. And then I went into the dialect stuff, and to my great amazement, that worked too. I still had a career. My goal had always been to be accepted at first as a comedian. Then I thought, if I had the guts to reveal it, I could introduce my sexuality without first establishing myself as a comedian. I was afraid I'd be seen simply as a comic who performed in drag, which I feel is another word for costume. I pushed back against the idea because what I was trying to say was this. The clothes I perform in are essentially the same clothes that I arrive and walk off in. Sometimes I arrive in girl mode, perform in boy mode, and then leave in girl mode. I think people understand that now. Though some people still say, you have a drag character. But how I dress and what I look like is not a character, it's me. It's just talking. And sometimes I just happen to be wearing lipstick. Hmm. I just wanted to give a sense of how hard it would be for this person at work mm -hmm. to put on lipstick, even though it's meant to be a joke in mm -hmm. the episode. Um, it was not something that a lot of people were doing, and it was very brave. Yes. I, that's something that stands out to me. And um, again, like Lauren mentioned at the beginning, we are not making a statement that any cis males who wear lipstick are any particular gender assignment um, or are not in their gender assignment. We're, we're not making any gender assignments here. Um, yes. One, one version of that could be trans. One could be a cis male who likes makeup. Um, but I do think that that's a beautiful way, beautiful perspective to hear from somebody such as Eddie Azard, who has such a wonderful perspective on these things. And and we do mm -hmm. recognize that the show was was making a, a joke and not intending a particular social damnation. Um, however, it is something to consider that at this time that that image, that visual, could be a punchline. Yes, in this particular situation in that time period, that punchline proved that he was just as bad as all of the rest as far as being a weirdo or off kilter or not a suitable secretary. And obviously times have changed and those jokes would not be made at this time or hopefully would not be made at this time. Yeah. Uh, but that's something we did want to comment on. And uh, to which Murphy says, great investigative work, Frank, as <laughs> she watches this happen over his shoulder. Yeah. So we cut to, they're standing around the coffee station. Frank starts to look very concerned to which Murphy notices that, oh, there's mint. Mm -hmm. He goes, no, no, something's wrong. And he looks and Jim's not there yet. 
And he's like, look, this is Jim's mug. And what is the first thing that Jim does when he gets in in the morning? He's here before all of us. And he gets coffee. And he turns his fish mug upside down and says, bone dry. She's like, it's fine. Frank points out that he did not go to Phil's with them the night before, after the show, after work. And she said, yeah, he said he was tired and he was heading home. And Frank says, yeah, he said he was tired and he was heading home and he expects us to buy that. Frank's in investigative mode. This is mm-hmm. something is wrong. He can put his finger on it. And he's like, no, you're it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. He was tired. He just went home. And then Corky arrives through the elevator and Corky immediately zooms in and says, is something the matter with Jim? And because she points out she was at the coffee shop and there was Jim sitting in a corner booth all by himself to which Frank goes, I knew it. She says, no dishes, no silverware. The waitress said he's been there all morning sorting the sugars to which Faith Ford does the best. One sweet and low, one regular, one sweet and low, sweet and low. One regular one regular i love the way she does it one sweet and low one regular it's hysterical and finally murphy cuts her off with what is wrong with you people if you want to solve a mystery try explaining deborah norville which we just talked about in the last episode Mm-hmm. and jim arrives in the elevator he walks on out hello all things seem fine he's talking about his drive he took his drive along the river and he loves that drive and he grabs his coffee stirs it with his his spoon and goes ah mint and walks out of frame Frank and Corky seem very relieved. And now Murphy's on the investigation. She goes, and they say, well, I, I guess you're right. I guess it was fine. She's like, no, 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 no. Look what just happened. He left a mess. Jim never leaves a mess. And she picks up the spoon that was on the counter. She said, and he didn't mix in any milk. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. So they all circle the table. They look very concerned. And Miles enters. And he said, you know, his little, you know. Heidi Ho there kind of greeting to everyone. And they recommend he he asks where Jim is. And they're like, he's in his office. Recommend not bothering him. Also, if I may say. Yeah. He goes in that Frank hallway. Mm-hmm. And Murphy knows he's in his office, which means exactly. his office has to be that way. Dun, so dun, dun. we have figured that out. There are offices back there for sure. We are solving things left and right. Aren't you glad I pointed that out, guys? Because it's Aren't so we? important. We're our own investigators. And we're killing it. Mullins and Milberger, P.I. Pew, pew. <gasps> you know what we're like? We're like what? that crossover episode of Murder, She Wrote and Magnum P.I. And Magnum P.I., thank you very much. There you go. Oh, sidebar. Sidebar. Speaking of Murder, She Wrote. I know everyone loves when I say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to recognize the actor who played the secretary, Jay Fenichel. Or Fenichel. Oh. Fenichel? I don't know. Um, So he unfortunately passed away at the age of 40 from cancer Uh, this was actually his last credit on his imdb uh but he was also in the pilot episode of murder she wrote really tell me Mm -hmm. more he's a guest at a costume party it's called the death of sherlock holmes it's a two-parter everyone should watch it it's where jessica fletcher gets her start as an authoress Uh, but he plays one of the one of the guests and they all dress up in their favorite fictional characters oh this is the the tv movie pilot thing right yeah, the original, yes. the, the oh. pilot of Murder, She Wrote. He is in <gasps> that. Mm-hmm. I have to go back and rewatch it. But just wanted to recognize this very handsome, far too young man who yeah. who passed away. And was also very, very good at putting on lipstick. He had some good form there, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, but back to Miles. So Miles wants to know what's wrong, to which Frank goes, he left a spoon on the counter. And nobody really knows what's going on. No one knows what's thrown Jim off. And Miles goes, oh, maybe because it's Jim's 25th anniversary at the network and he's hurt because no one's mentioned it or congratulated him. And was like, what? How do you know? How did we not? How do you know that? And he goes, because I, the dense guy, stay current. (laughs) And also he's holding a letter from Time Magazine that wants to do a feature on Jim's 25th anniversary. (laughs) 
Like, I, the dense guy. <laughs> I, the dense guy. I like, I like Grant's <laughs> delivery on that one. Uh, so they all start realizing they have to do something for Jim. They have to make this up for him. Frank thinks that they should have a party. And to which Corky says, oh, no, not another one of your chili parties, Frank. A little scary knowing Frank. Little, I do not want to eat Frank's chili. His I'm bathroom sorry, doesn't have a door. Exactly. They, mm, no. No chili yeah. from Frank. Then they, they suggest a, an FYI segment, you know, celebrating his his work there and his history. And Frank says, no, that's too self-promoting. That Frank, Jim would never go for it. And Murphy realizes she has the best answer, which is a classic roast. And Corky asks, you mean where we all get up and say funny things about Jim? And Murphy says, no, not just funny, funny, insulting funny. We get all his friends together and we stick him up on a dais and we, and we skewer him till he begs for mercy. And everyone is very in favor of this. So we cut to time has passed. Obviously, we're in the bullpen and Murphy wants to go over the details of the roast. Everyone's at the meeting table and it's going to be a big event. People are flying in from all over the world. Uh, Murphy is going to get Jim to go there under the guise of just having dinner with her alone. And then we actually have a big cut. Mm -hmm. An entire sort of joke through line of Frank's gets completely taken out of this. So Frank has been doing research because again, investigative reporter, and he photocopies some stuff for everyone and it's uh, bio information on Jim's life in case they want to use it to make some jokes. And apparently if Humphrey had won in 58, he was going to make Jim his press secretary. That's inf interesting information. Hmm. Uh, Corky asks if it's from his bio and Frank remarks, no, it's from Jim's obit. So if those people don't know, when you're famous, your obituary is written before you die and is added to as it goes along. Mm -hmm. So Corky says, ew, he doesn't want to think about that. Frank says it's a real time saver. You know, you just change all the verbs to the present tense. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. he, um, he pulls out sort of, you know, a couple pages stapled together and he's like, his life? And then he shows one page, my life. <laughs> I'm so depressed right now. <laughs> then we get back to the version that everyone knows, which is from TV Land, where Murphy wants to be sure that everyone has great material. She's been working on hers all week, honing, sharpening. Uh, it's got some killer lines, some real classic stuff. Ooh. She's very, very proud of this. And Miles um, tries to, to get it out of her. Oh, also, something that I realized was also cut, not from any version that I have, but from what I was reading in the Murphy book, apparently Miles wants to be the MC of this roast. Uh, which you can tell by his body language later. That's why I realized because of the, also this joke where he's like, oh, really? What's your joke? And everyone laughs like, oh, it's from another part mm -hmm. where Murphy offers to arm wrestle Miles and he very quickly goes, never mind, and gets out of it. So uh, she didn't even have to try. I wouldn't. Yes, no, I think Murphy would win that. So Miles, you know, asks her to, you know, tell them what the jokes are. Murphy at first is like, oh, no, she should wait for the roast. But of course, it's Murphy. So it's very easy to get her to do it. So she stands up. So her first one is, you know, there's a reason why they made Jim the anchor of FYI, because he drags down the show. So pr she's so proud of these jokes. And Candace is laughing hysterically, like like tears of joy. She thinks it's so funny. No one else does. She gets, an, she gets another one. She goes, oh, no, 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 no. I'll wait. I'll wait. No, no, no. She'll tell it. If Jim were any more stoic, he'd be dead. <laughs> she just thinks these are hilarious. Her entire body bends over. But then she realizes that that's not going to make people laugh if she tries to show how funny they are with her body and mm -hmm. just goes, okay, so what do you all have? Corky chimes in with a story. She says it's a real zinger. Everyone is wrapped to attention. And she just pretty much tells a basic story about how Jim helped her change a tire. 
and once got a little spot of dirt on his nose, which she thinks is adorable. Because he's an adorable, wonderful man. So Quirky's not really getting what a roast is quite yet. No. Murphy goes, next! Miles is next. Uh, He said he's still working on the setup, but blah, blah, blah. I don't want to say Jim is conservative, but when he got off the plane in Hawaii, he immediately tied his lay into a Windsor knot. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah, it, it's great. Um, Murphy does not think it's quite great. And we have another cut section where uh, she goes, great, why don't we just throw him a baby shower? And she's really pushing everyone, you know, come on. And they need to go for the jugular. And Murphy knows that Frank's been working on something. She's seen him working on it. And no, Frank has not been working on jokes. He's been punching up his obituary. (laughs) And then we're back again to the version that we know. Um, And Murphy just needs to level with everyone, but they stink. Jim has been at the network for 25 years. 25 years. Doesn't that mean anything to you? The events he's been a part of, the careers he's nurtured, the tireless work he's done for charities, and you can't think of one rotten thing to say about him. What kind of friends are you? Come on. Let's do it for Jim. Let's show him how much we love him. Let's fry his butt. She's committed. She's, she's really committed. So then mm-hmm. we cut to the day of the roast. We are outside the lobby sort of coat check area of the Oak Room, which we'll find out later. Uh, Murphy is dropping off her coat at the coat check. Frank comes out with a psst, psst, which uh, Murphy says uh, that no one says psst anymore uh, and that, you know, Jim will be there any minute. But Frank apologized. He's just so excited. Also, I love what Candace is wearing in this scene. I wrote down that I would actually wear that tomorrow. I have dresses that are that cut. I love that. Well, that purse is back in again. That's sort of, Mm -hmm. you know. So is uh, that dress. Yeah, no, she looks great. It's like that whole outfit is back in. I think that the the white dots are raised, I think, right? I was wondering if they were like a beading or a raised. Yeah, it just seems like a little like not just polka dots. It's, Mm -hmm. It's very cute. Black hose. Great. So Frank comments that, you know, anyone who's anyone in the news business is there. If a bomb fell in the place, Phyllis George would be back in the news business, which is interesting because I had to look her up because I knew the name, but I couldn't really remember who she was. Mm -hmm. And she's a former beauty queen. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. So interesting considering, you know, we have Corky here, but she actually, she did quit the news business, but she became a very successful businesswoman from what I understand. So, oh yeah. She, she, found, she found her own. Uh, Murphy wants Frank to go back in before Jim gets back any minute. You know, he's parking the car. Um, and uh, with sort of a gleeful smile on her face, she tells Frank to tell Sam Donaldson to keep it down. She can hear him from the street. And I just sort of love it. It's like, she's not mad. She's just like, oh, everyone's together. We're gonna, this is gonna be fun, you know? Mm-hmm. This is, this is gonna be the best thing that's ever happened to Jim. And because she loves him so much. Frank says, okay, okay, and he kind of squeezes her arm, which is really sweet, and Murphy gives the thumbs up, and he goes back in, and we hear Frank, as the doors close, Sam, shut up, which is very Jersey, by the way, I have to say. Very, very. Yeah. Uh, Jim arrives. I love that he puts his scarf in his, like, I know it's people do this, but it just seems very, like, traditional to Jim. Like, he puts his scarf in the sleeve, and he takes yeah. his hat off. It's like, That is proper Kochek etiquette. Exactly. And he apologizes for the wait, but there was no way he was leaving his car with the valet who had chicken nugget sauce on his fingers. That's fair. I also feel like this is the beginning of a really wonderful performance by Charles Kimbrough. This is, this episode just makes it for me with Charlie. He's saying pretty banal things, but you Mm -hmm. really get the sense of someone who's depressed. It's so infused with what's going on inside him. Like this hopelessness in it. Mm -hmm. And I, I hadn't noticed it the first time I 
I watched it that I, it's really so subtle and so beautiful that you, you know that something is wrong, mm-hmm. whether you know Jim or not. So Murphy just wants to get inside because she wants to eat. Jim hands his stuff to the hat check person, gives the hat, and she takes it by the brim. To which she goes, you know, you really shouldn't handle a hat by the brim. Oh, oh, I, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to lash out at you. I apologize. Please, please forgive me. Which, of course, Jim did not lash out at this woman. He said it in the, in the simplest way. <laughs> he, he corrected someone, really, yes. is what happened. And nicely, too. <laughs> and nicely, exactly. She offers to give the hat back because she's obviously mm-hmm. confused. And Jim goes, no, no, you're, fu- you're doing a fine job. Carry on. <laughs> and then Jim takes Murphy aside that he can't believe how he tore into this woman, which he did not do at all. No. He's so sweet and so sensitive and so polite. You know, it's a real sense of like who he is. And Murphy again just wants to go in. And, and Jim goes, dear God, what is happening to me? Which is that one really causes Murphy to turn around and and ask if he's all right. You know, something's wrong. And I love he goes, yes, no, I I don't, I don't know. Which (laughs) is, I mean, a very sort of banal line, but I I think it's very telling. Yes, he's okay. No, he's not okay. He doesn't know. It's it's really kind of beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then he confesses to Murphy that he's been on the network for 25 years today. Which, of course, Murphy feigned shock. She never knew. You know, 25 years sounds pretty impressive. I told myself I'd hold it together. Don't I always hold it together? That line really got me because for someone. Yeah, it got me really good. I I think, right, we both understand this. You know, sometimes in, in people's lives or in your own life or with other people, you become that person who this is what I do. I hold it together. Mm-hmm. I'm the strong one. I have to keep going. But sometimes things happen when you just don't want to be that person in that moment. There's something about that stands out to me when Jim is saying this, not only does he assume they don't know, but also nobody there surrounding him understands. Well, yeah, he's the oldest. Literally, no one there understands what he's talking about. And he, what I like about the, the, I don't know is that this is, this is a new thing for him. Not only does he not, does no one else have this experience, but he also is working through it, something brand new that he's never experienced himself. And so there's this interesting young confusion and fear in him that I think multiplies his pain right now. Like not only is he alone and the old guy, but he also feels very young in the same moment. Yeah. It's really, it's really heartbreaking. I think also for a man who always has everything in the right place, mm-hmm. is always mindful. Mm-hmm. Never leaves a mess. Exactly. And so to him, oh, dear God, what am I doing is if I left a spoon, I I corrected Mm -hmm. someone impolitely. He doesn't feel like himself. And when Mm -hmm. you don't feel like yourself, it's a scary thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's really quite a beautiful scene. I have to say he confesses to Murphy, which is a big deal for Jim. I'm plagued with self-doubt. I feel painfully vulnerable, which is so important to what happens next Mm -hmm. like i love this scene because it's beautiful and it shows what's happening but it really sets up the pain yeah even in a funny way but it's words like vulnerable self-doubt but that particular word that really that really hit me and he's so grateful for murphy for inviting him (laughs) here it is for a quiet dinner alone and then murphy looks towards the door which Mm -hmm. is such a great little visual thing 
and Jim, you know, he bemuses that, you know, they've been friends for so long. She just probably could tell that some, that he needed it. And he walks towards the door. Uh, oh, here it is. This is the word actually that yep. I think is it's vulnerable in this word. He feels that Murphy sensed he needed a safe place <laughs> oh, uh, where he could finally open up. And Murphy literally barricades the door with her body. You know, she knew something was going on. She didn't know what it was, but now she does. And she doesn't think the Oak Room is really the best place. And of course, what's great is Jim goes, why? And she cannot think of a real answer except that the room really is not made of oak. Mm-hmm. She can't get him away from the door. And uh, he, he, she's like, they could go to Phil's. Come on, let's go somewhere else. Go to Phil's. And, and he literally says, no, 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 not Phil's. He doesn't want a chance encounter with anyone he knows tonight. Oh. And goes towards the door. She tries to stop him. And he goes, no, 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 no. And opens the door to surprise. And then he just slowly turns and looks at Murphy oh. with just the worst, worst look on his face. It's just, oh no. It hurts. What have you done? This is bad. And here's the thing. To her credit, she did it with the best of intentions. And and like, it really was, oh, absolutely. it should have been the perfect party. Unfortunately, fate had a different plan for Jim and Murphy. But to his credit, he walks in. So quickly before we go into the roast portion of this episode, I thought I would talk about sort of the history of comedic roasts, if people were not aware. So it's really funny. When I decided to do the research for the history of roasts, I assumed it was going to go back hundreds of years and I'd find all this really cool information. And I have to be honest, there really isn't a lot that I could find. If there's a book out there, I would love to read it. Please let me know. But mostly what I found, which is stuff that I kind of already knew and stuff I didn't know, is that really roasts were made popular by the Friars Club, which we've talked about before. The Friars Club started in 1904, but something that I did not know is that it was originally called the Press Agents Association. Actors, musicians, and comedians joined later. And the tradition of roasting one member a year started in 1949 with the roast of vaudeville actor and singer Maurice Chevalier. Eventually, the roasts were televised on television somewhat in the late 60s, uh, the Kraft uh, Music Hall program, and in the 70s with the Dean Martin Celebrity Roast. But they were never as filthy or dirty as they were in real life. The things that were said really, really couldn't uh, be on TV. Now, something else I found interesting is that technically the White House Correspondent Association dinner is also considered a roast or as many refer to it as nerd prom. And that dates back to at least the 1920s. It's really hard to say if the friars weren't doing roasts before the one in 1949 that maybe isn't publicized. But really what we know today as a roast or really the roast or the type of roast that happens in the in the show some would say that the Friars made comedy roasts a household name. Uh, the Friars roast motto is, we only roast the ones we love. Roasts are really meant to sort of, you know, push against the values of propriety in the same spirit of Lenny Bruce or George Carlin. Now, we've also talked about that women were really not permitted till about 1988. They did roast certain women, but it was never as filthy. Uh, Johnny Carson, I believe, about Lucille Ball, uh, the worst thing he said was he called her Lucille testicles. Jim walks into his roast, and it is a... What I like is sometimes on shows like this, it's very obvious that it's a small room that they tried to pack the angle to look filled. Yeah. 
at these kinds of parties. And it actually, they have a pretty good setup of extras and people there. Like, it feels rambunctious. It's the same set as last episode, isn't it? That they redressed, which is, I'm sure they did them back to back on purpose. Like, what a great way to save money. Mm -hmm. Well, and it it gives me the same, I I find it interesting that they, because of the way sitcoms like this work and uh, these types of sets, uh, it also gives me the same feel as the, um, I would have danced all night. I, I get a very similar. So I, I, but I like that it feels it feels full. I, I feel like if the camera kept turning, if it went a little past, you know, the flat kind of proscenium shot that we have, mm-hmm. that I would see more people around them, which I I like because sometimes I can tell that it's an angle. I have to say, when they did this kind of set in the revival, when I mm-hmm. saw it from the outside, it looked so much more believable on camera, which is such a great testament to mm-hmm. the um, designers and the people who put the sets mm-hmm. together and all of the sort of unstrung heroes of of film and TV that, you know, there is a different mm-hmm. way of building something, whereas I would see it and go, oh, it looks really sort of cramped in there. And, uh, and then you see it on camera and I go, no, it looks just like roasted and it looks just like all the other episodes from the classic series. Yes. I think there's something... What I love is when I see excellent uh, set dressing and camera work and and plots like this where they could very easily make it feel cramped mm-hmm. to evoke that or they can make it feel expansive. And set, there's such a genius to the the layout of a, a crew of extras mm. and how they choose to have the, the featured extras placed, how they choose to have the movement. I, I think movement language is really... Um, underrated when it comes to setting the scene in in a show. I was just rewatching an episode of The West Wing, and I just I'm always so interested in when they choose to have the other employees of the, of the bullpen cross yeah. and where that action comes from, and the type of movement language that you get from the people around. And the but what I love in this scene in particular are the bustling of people at tables, the way that and all the extras, whether they're all the way in the back or they're featured up in the front, the way they turn to each other, the way they interact, it feels like a bustling room. And it feels like too many people for him to deal with. Yeah. And and what what's great is that it's definitely a different feel than the awards banquet from last season. You know, it's like this yes. it's a really yes. hot ticket and everyone wants to get in and they're going to fit in as many people as possible. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and in a way, I guess I hadn't thought about this, but based on your description kind of maybe – makes it feel sort of like the claustrophobic Jim is not happy to be there. And this is almost like the worst Mm -hmm. day of his life, probably up until now. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no way for him to and we see it at the end of this scene that there's no way for him to pass through without being touched. Yeah, he's within arm's reach of everybody. There's and there's just no protecting himself. And they're playing, I believe what pop goes the weasel. Yes, I I think it's Pop Goes the Weasel. That when you say that, I'm like, yes, because I remember noting the music. Oh, it's it's painful. It's very very painful. You you, you really it's visceral. Yeah. Like we're we're yeah. As we're talking about, both of our shoulders are kind of going up <laughs> as we talk about being claustrophobic. Like it's it's happening. So Jim walks in and he's immediately kind of just resigned and waiting through these tables to his what Murphy had originally described as the dais to the stage where he sits and there is an over large throne quote unquote um he has a massive crown and scepter that he is given they're just plopped on into his hand and on top of his head and to his back left there is a massive photo of jim at fyi is he picking his ear he is yeah yes it's it's ear in he's clearly like mid-sentence not a photo that was planned i want to know this is just such an ideal roast photo 
but I'm so fascinated that someone had that on hand because it doesn't seem like something that people just hold around as a bad photo of Jim Dial. I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it was during a commercial break, right? Yes. I have to assume based on history and and the way that the, the germ of this roast is that this is Murphy's had this picture for a long time, that it's Murphy's picture. Oh, good um, point. Because I'm thinking about who would actually have a picture and hold on to a bad picture of Jim. There are very few options, I think, of people who would hold on to a bad picture of Jim and have it ready to print. Because let's all remember, this is you have to get your photos developed era. Mm -hmm. So you're not just clicking and holding on to a funny candid for later to post. This is something that you have to actively keep that film or have it printed out. So at, I, because of his prestige and the respect for Jim, I think there's only really one or two options of people who would have held on to this. And it's someone like Murphy who's immediately like, let's roast him. So that's a fun little note for me. That's my headcanon. So I like it. I take it. Sold. Yeah. So we get up on stage and Murphy is as reluctant as Jim at this point to get on this stage. It's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And she, what I love is she's, she's doing the thing where she is trying to figure out how to save face, but also potentially telegraph to the room to follow her lead but yeah. she's doing it so badly that no and everyone's riding the high of what's going to happen they've all clearly been pumping up for days like everyone is ready for this and no one has any interest in picking up some subtle cues <laughs> and so she says that we're here to honor jim dial a man we respect and care for very much very very much to which i think it's frank who yells shouts cut him up murphy Oh, I thought Over it was Over her Phil. from the audience. I thought it was Phil. I'm oh, I think sure. it was Phil. That's right. Yep. But she tries to come up with, she's like, you know, we all know Jim. What's the point of old stories? And then offers that there's a live band nearby and she gets booed and just shut down. So she accepts the fact that she's going to have to go through with this. So she starts one of the jokes that we've heard previously, which is, uh, we know why they made Jim the anchor, because he's really good at what he does. <laughs> If he was any more stoic, we'd still like him. <laughs> and Jim just looks miserable because you can tell he knows. And he knows, one, she's bad at this. And he knows that he's going to have to deal. So she... Also, if I may add, we yeah. have established in the other scene that Murphy's jokes are bad. So there's yeah, no she way has that, terrible jokes. that anyone in the room is going to guess that she's trying to signal them to end it. These are no worse than what she already had. Yeah. Except for the fact that she's not following them with her Kermit laugh. Oh, my God. Her Kermit laugh. <laughs> I love her Kermit laugh. I love her Kermit laugh. So she decides to call up what she thinks would be the easiest bomb, which is Corky. Mm -hmm. Corky comes up in this cute little purple suit number. And as she's handing over the mic stand, she goes, tell the tire story. <laughs> and... Corky is just confident as all get out, which she has improved over time and tells a story, not the tire story, about how most people might mistake him as being stiff and rigid, but not in the bedroom. Just ask his wife. Jim looks like he's going to die in that chair. We've gone a long way since uh, Corky didn't understand what the um, goodbye party was and she got him placemats. Someone explained yeah. to her what a roast is in between since we've seen her. Yeah, and Corky's got a few more chops than Murphy does when it comes yes. to roasting. Luckily, we don't see the rest of Corky's victory, but we do get a nice little mini montage 
of some of the jokes that come up. So next we see Frank. And his first joke is, do you remember where you were the day Jim smiled? Which kills the room. He refers to Murphy and Jim as beauty and the deceased. I'm a little mad at him for that one. And then he brings up that uh, Jim should be doing TV commercials, promoting a cemetery. He's not a corpse, but he plays one on TV. But I'm ching. Then we see Phil, who says that he loves having uh, Jim in the bar because it gives people something to hang their coats on. And then we get Miles. And what the first thing I wrote was, so much mic work. Yeah, the mic work is fantastic. It's, uh, it's, it's again, Miles overcompensating in a really big way. Yes, and Grant shot at his physical best. Yes. Because he's actually, he's got the thing, it's like in stage combat where you have to be really good at at tumbling to sell that you're really, you're falling badly. Mm-hmm. Grant shot is clearly so good at the mic work that he's able to sell kind of lucking into it as Miles. Like he actually has the timing to make it look really dorky. Yeah. But he clearly is a very good physical comedian. Otherwise, oh, he couldn't do that. Amazing physical comedian, Grand Shot. Oh, yeah. He brings up that um, Jim is not an actor, but um, that he was once in a production of Romeo and Juliet and uh, gave Juliet a reason to die at the beginning of the play. And um, that he went to Hawaii and tied his lay into a Windsor knot, which is still one of my favorite roast jokes of this episode. <laughs> it's the only real joke. Then we cut to Jim's good friend. We find out his best friend, one of his oldest friends, we we find out later at the in Jim's roast himself. But Irving R. Levine to come up. And this Irving R. Levine. Irving R. Levine. And Murphy calls him up and says that they go way back and that uh she tell and she tells Irving how very, very much Jim admires him. Now, before we get into Irving's roast. In case you're not familiar with Irving R. Levine, you have seen him before. He is an icon. Um, there, it makes a lot of sense that uh, Jim admires him, looks up to him, would be of the same ilk. Uh, one of my favorite just Murphy Brown tidbits is the fact that we have heard of Irving R. Levine before on Murphy Brown because we find out in season one that uh, Murphy is quite appalled to discover um, that Linda Ellerby started a rumor that Murphy had the hots for Irving R. Levine. Now that you see him, you may understand why Murphy was a little annoyed by that. Uh, Irving is known for many things, particularly the bow tie. Yes. Uh, that wonderful bow tie. His glasses. Um, his notable ears. <laughs> he, uh, he's a precious figure. Um, he had a 45-year career. Uh, he reported for more than two dozen countries as an American journalist, and lo- and he was a longtime correspondent for NBC News. Mm-hmm. Um, he, and this is one of the reasons why I think that he is particularly notable for Jim, because of the, mm-hmm. the history Jim has as a foreign correspondent as well, was that um, Irving R. Levine was the first American television correspondent to be accredited in the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. He became a household name. Um, it's funny that we talked about, like, uh, Walter Cronkite as... Uh, the most trusted man. Uh, there's a certain quality of that to Irving R. Levine as well. Um, that he uh, he wrote, what was it? Three nonfiction books on life in the USSR. Each of them became a bestseller. And um, he actually didn't die that long ago. I found his obituary. He died in 2009 at 86. Mm-hmm. You can definitely go check out the, um, the obituary. It is uh, posted on the New York Times in perpetuity. But um, they're opening 
statement about him is something that I think is really notable, which is that Irving R. Levine, the longtime NBC News correspondent, whose easily accessible explanations of monetary policy, fluctuations in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and the intricacy of global market made him the economy staple of television news. Um, he was notable for being able to bring up these complex uh, international and and domestic concepts of the economy into the home so that people could understand and feel like they could keep up with what was going on. They didn't feel that they were being talked down to. He was able to express these concepts and include the, the average con- constituent in the conversation. Uh, he's also presents a, a rather uh, distinguished and serious nature when you first mm-hmm. see him. And so thus he starts his roast by saying that he would like to be serious for a moment. He wants to talk about a man who's a legend in this business, uh, who has journalistic integrity and respectability, someone he's proud to call his friend. But since David Brinkley couldn't be here, he'll just take a few shots at Jim. <laughs> this is, it's a, he, he sells it really well. It's a beautiful moment where you're like, oh, okay, okay, Jim's going to get, uh, and we like, we should know better. We should know better. But kudos to Irving, like many of the, uh, the quote unquote real life people who guest on this show, sells it very well. And he says he wouldn't say that Jim is stiff, but he does moonlight as an ironing board. Uh, He starts to tell a story about how they played tennis once and Jim got caught in the neck by his cufflink. And that's when Murphy swoops in to cut Irving because she can tell that Jim is, this is the nail in the coffin for Jim at this point. He has been sinking. He has looked miserable. This is when he's, you start seeing the rage build in the Mm, background. And Irving says that, he he's basically like, come on, I was just getting to my George Bush material. And on his way off the stage, cries back to Murphy, who died and made you Leslie Stahl. Didn't Murphy kind of tries to push him off, right? That's it? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She is trying to shoulder him off and he's trying to stay because he has so much material and he's ready to go. <laughs> can I can I share a Leslie yeah. Stahl story? Because we don't have time Please to talk do. about her. Um, but I looked her up a little bit because sometimes, you know, we'll prepare a bunch of stuff and realize, oh, this is too much. You know, we'll do this, we'll do that. And I really feel like we can talk about Leslie Stahl in the future. She does host the, mm-hmm. the documentary on Murphy Brown later in the seasons. So we have another chance to talk about her. But I found this video where she talked about really being hired in, I think about like 1972 for broadcast, because they really were looking for women, particularly because they were being forced (laughs) to Mm -hmm. uh, diversity hire. This white woman is diversity Mm -hmm. hire in 1972. And um she did co-host the election with Roger Mudd, with Walter Cronkite, and Mm-hmm. For the first sort of election that they were doing, uh, she was brought down to the stage because it was her first time, you know, and this is where Walter Cronkite will sit and this is where Roger Mudd will sit and all their names were there. And then by her seat, it said female. Oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, guys. And it was just it, – it's a groaner, but it, I think it's such an important story to just show how far we have come and how far women yeah. have come and women in broadcasting and also understand that, you know, this is Murphy's story as well, which we've talked about a little bit in the summer of 77. But in 72, yeah. she most likely was a foreign correspondent. Mm-hmm. It's just I, – I thought that was a really perfect story for our show. So, Absolutely. Well, let's not forget that – Murphy has to be described as, well, not has to be, it's clever. She's cleverly described as Mike Wallace in a dress. Right. But part of that is because the idea of having a a female appearing counterpart to Mike Wallace was not a an obvious option to exactly, give people as a yeah. reference. 
Like we had to say, it's like Mike Wallace in a dress rather than saying it's like this person. It's why now sometimes people say it's like Murphy Brown. Right. Because it wasn't that common to have someone of the of the other gender at that time as as a symbol. We had to say it's the female version of this because the standard was male. Because the qualities of Mike Wallace are supposedly only male qualities and cannot be attributed mm-hmm. to, a, to a woman, really, mm-hmm. at least at that mm-hmm. time. Well, yes. And I th- one of the things that I appreciate about this show is not only do we have the Mike Wallace in the dress character created and solidified in pop culture, but also this show regularly gives us women who already exist in that real, real mm-hmm. world who yeah. are doing that, that are just not being given the praise that they as much praise as they deserve. Now, many of these women that are these women newscasters and journalists that come on and guest are definitely respected and praised, but not as much as they should have been. So it's just nice to be reminded like Murphy Brown is not the first one. These women are trailblazers and are already there, but we need to make sure that they are there as much as we are recording this on Barbara Walters 90th birthday. Sure are. Happy birthday, Mm -hmm. Barbara. I think there's also something to be said that these women for job security at the time could not act like Mike Wallace, could not have hissy fits, could not be unladylike, let's say, uh, Mm -hmm. because their jobs were expendable in this man's world. They could just be replaced very easily. Yep. Most of the men didn't think they deserved to be there to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. It's a wonderful double standard. Yes. Also, one last thing. I also did find that um, Leslie Stahl asked her husband that Mike Wallace not speak at her funeral because he couldn't be trusted. <laughs> Fair. He once asked her about her sex life in an interview. <sighs> Mike. Yeah. But we'll talk about more of that later. I mean, not about yes. her sex life, about how that was an inappropriate no. question and why. About how that's not okay. Yeah. <laughs> why it's not okay. Okay. So. Uh, <laughs> so we we exit Irving R. Levine. And... As Murphy's trying, like, okay, well, we're done. And trying to wrap up, the Frank yells out, what about Jim? And the the audience of the row start the classic Jim, 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 Jim chant. And Murphy's trying to avoid it. So Jim stands up quite angrily. And I have his entire speech written. Of course you do. Because it's wonderful. Oh, can I also add real quickly? Yeah. I feel that we should mention that Irving R. Levine also appeared on Saturday Night Live poking fun mm-hmm. at himself. So it's not the first time, but I can't find any other sort of references. So it doesn't sound like he he did it that that often, which is a testament yeah. to Murphy Brown as well. And he's so good. Anyway. He's very good. So Jim stands up. And my favorite part about this is, as hopefully my read will demonstrate, <laughs> Jim is the best roaster in the room. But it it's that thing about when you're really angry, mm-hmm. sometimes that's when you're the wittiest. Mm-hmm. So none of this is coming from a place of I'm going to be funny, but it's all perfect. And of course, that's why the entire audience loses it. So he says, well, I guess you all think you're pretty funny. You're wasting your time in the news business. Why don't you go on Star Search where you belong? There's a butum ching and laughter. What are you laughing at, Frank, our brave investigative reporter, our daredevil? Why don't you take a flying leap? They laugh, but I'm ching. Miles, you call me wooden? You, you, FYI's answer to howdy duty, but I'm ching. And I should be lectured by Corky Sherwood, the woman whose idea of literature is a stop sign, but I'm ching. Phil has something to say about the way I look. Phil, now there's a man you'd like to see naked. 
Irving R. Levine. Irving R. Levine, my oldest friend. I'm going to kill you, Irving. <laughs> and then Irving yells back, what are you going to do? Bore me to death. The crowd goes wild. Frank starts, or Frank, Jim says, all right, fine, have your little jokes. And as far as I'm concerned, you can all go to hell. And storms off the stage, starts marching through. People are touching him. They're cheering. They're applauding, standing ovation. He gets to the door, turns around. Oh, shut up. And exits the room. With this beautiful, like, hand-painted, like, yes. With- 25th anniversary yeah. roast sign. Which yes. I feel like we've only really seen that when Murphy, you know, came back from Betty Ford. Yes. It's, it's be- gorgeous. It's beautiful. No it's a beautiful does, event. No one does that anymore. Nope. No, that, that was definitely not printed on an Apple LGS, I would just like to say. Twas not. No. So cut to the Lincoln Memorial. Mm. It's at night. It's beautiful. We find Jim sitting on the steps. And and it's a brief little moment sort of where we get to see him alone. I think it's very beautiful before we hear steps, footsteps. Yeah, I love that they took that extra moment. I I really do as well. Then finally Murphy appears and Jim is very shocked to see her. She remarks that she'd forgotten how beautiful the Lincoln Memorial looks at night. Jim says yes and very peaceful in the dark Mm -hmm. and quiet. Then daylight breaks. Then the tourists start running up and down the steps, clicking cameras, dropping litter. Styrofoam cups, cigarette butts, the little foils and the lifesaver rolls, the brown licorice that people buy because they think they're going to like it, but then they, they don't like it and they throw it on the ground. And and he's sort of pretty much going, going off the rails there about the brown licorice. Um, and he wonders how Murphy knew he was going to be there. It's really sort of beautiful moment, but also that sort of little comic thing with him getting stuck with how they're going to ruin this beautiful place with, you know, their their presence and their disregard for this gorgeous old monument oh my god i just thought of that in the moment (gasps) Mm -hmm. i'm exhausted uh sometimes you say things out loud and you go oh that's a metaphor genius work anyway so so murphy (laughs) says that one night that they went to celebrate the end of disco at phil's and that he told her and confessed to her that he likes to come here and sit at the feet of the great man and reflect on the peace and of his words. Of course, they were drinking heavily at the time. Uh, Murphy asks if she can sit down. Jim says if she likes, but he warns her that the steps are cold, uh, which is a great little detail, I have to say, because of course they would be. And uh, Murphy was not expecting how cold they would be. But also, I feel we have to remember that Murphy is wearing probably a thin dress and pantyhose. So those of us who have had to sit on cold steps in nothing but a short dress and pantyhose know that it is probably colder for her than it is yeah. for Jim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Murphy assumes that Jim must be really mad at her. And what's really sweet is that he isn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he really, he understands, you know, and he, he feels that he must have looked like an old fool up there. Whereas Murphy goes, no, he was a big hit. There's talk of him uh, emceeing Mike Wallace's roast. <laughs> Uh, Murphy says that, you know, um, asking people about their feelings isn't really her strong suit. And uh, Jim confesses that, you know, talking about his own is not his as well, which is really sort of a great dynamic is to put the two of them in this situation, two people who are very close with each other and love each other. But one is not good at getting to the personal and the other one doesn't like talking about the personal. It's a great conflict. Well, it's just it's it's again one of those things that's very uniquely this show in which this conversation between two different characters would go very differently, but the 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 nuance of the individuals is what makes the scene work. Because you could have a conversation like this in, in any yeah. sitcom. These these kinds of moments and conversations happen all the time. The reason it stands out is because the people mm-hmm. 
having the conversation are so specific. It's not about the conversation. The conversation is is pretty pretty normal. People have conversations like this all the time. We've, we've yeah. s- again, seen this in so many sitcoms. The reason it's beautiful, the reason it's poignant is because we know from the way the characters have been built, the way this relationship has been set up, that this conversation is very difficult to even have. Yeah, and I just sort of love that. I love that it's difficult for both of them mm-hmm. in different ways. This is also a really great moment where there's a pause and then Murphy turns and says, Jim, and then Jim looks at her like he's yeah. looking for a life raft. Like, oh, she's going to say something. Okay, I didn't have to do it. We can have this conversation. And then uh, she says, these these, these steps are really cold. <laughs> she can't do it. And then finally, uh, Jim confesses that um, this all started a couple of months ago with mm. a tightening in his chest, a shortness of breath. And then he woke up in the middle of the night with his heart pounding so hard, he had Doris drive him to the hospital. But he's fine. You know, Murphy is relieved. And he, he makes a sort of horrible joke at his own expense, you know, that, that there's nothing wrong with him. He's just, just going nuts uh, with this sort of big sigh, you know, is trying to, as if to say, as if to laugh it off. But there's so much pain going on in that moment. It's really, this whole scene really makes me sad in, in so many ways. But I, of all, of all the work that I've seen Charles Kimbrough do on the show, I really wish he'd won the Emmy for this. Mm-hmm. It's it's really beautiful. It's very nuanced and it has such a great balance mm-hmm. of comedy and drama and it's so human. I think something that we've talked about previously, it's the culmination of a long arc of work. Yes, it's it's yes. really it pays off because of the work he's put in ahead of time. Yeah, it's like what Joanna mm-hmm. Gleason said when we interviewed her about how, you know, the secondary characters really need a second or a third season yeah. to mm-hmm. to really have their moment because it's about everyone else first and you know, they they've given Jim a lot of these episodes, but we wouldn't have this one if we yep. hadn't had the other two. Uh, mm-hmm. His incident with Miller absolutely leads into this. Absolutely. I suddenly had a tightness in my chest, a shortness in my breath. It makes you start to wonder about the timeline of the Miller incident and that. Like, it it really, mm-hmm. you start going back and seeing that, I mean, even back in Soul Man, like, seeing this man who was of a time and going against the expectations mm-hmm. of that time, like the way that that small bulk, that small, you know, snowflake could have started rolling with another one and becoming a giant snow. Like, it's just that I truly believe because of the writing of the show and Charles Kimbrough's performance, that this is a culmination of an arc that we've been privy to. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, no, it did not. It's, it's really beautiful. So Jim lets out sort of a big sigh. You know, he he's at the top of his profession. I've seen wars, done with kings, buried presidents. I have friends who respect me and a wife who loves me. And it seems like I have it all. And, and Murphy says it, it always seemed that way to her as well. And he says something, which I think is the crux of this entire beautiful monologue. And it, it's so hard to do because I can't do it the justice mm-hmm. that Charles Kimbrough did. But he says, Murphy, it feels like all the best years of my mm-hmm. life are behind me. Yeah. He's 50. That's what's, ugh. So Murphy just stands up, that he still can get his passion back, that he needs to do something, find a hobby. (laughs) Uh, Jim says that he was never good with tools and he hates to fish. (laughs) She says that he should travel, write a book. By the way, if I can say all these things Jim eventually did. Even the novel. He started working with tools. I'm not sure if he started fishing. Jim says he's been everywhere. 
Murphy is exasperated. She says he might as well just, you know, paint pictures of Elvis on velvet. She, you know, she doesn't care. Like he, he has to, she's fighting for herself as much as she's yeah. fighting for him mm -hmm. in this moment, which she, she confesses, which is great because she goes, okay, we don't have the answer now, but we'll work on it, which is also a great mm -hmm. thing to say about mm -hmm. life, right? Like it's okay maybe to not have the answer in the moment, but the alternative there's no alternative. You got to keep going exactly. forward and eventually you'll figure mm -hmm. it out. And I kind of really love that because Murphy says she's got a lot riding on this. You know, he may not have noticed, but she's not an ingenue anymore. She's her up and comer days are behind her. And if he's going to tell her that life ends in 50, then she's going to go over to Phil's, order a double scotch and chain smoke because there's no point in trying anymore if you don't believe that life gets better. Don't give up. Keep looking for the passion. Go for it. To which Murphy goes, oh my God, did I just say that? I hate that expression. I vowed I would never use those three words together. New Year's, 1979. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really love that joke. <laughs> uh, and what's really sort of beautiful is there is really no line here, but Jim laughs at yeah. her. Like he just, he's tickled by her. She's really trying to help him. Mm-hmm. She's doing it so badly, but she's showing that she loves him. Yeah. So um, Jim Jim thinks that they should they should go. He'll walk her to her car. And Jim starts to notice the reflecting pool and just how beautiful it is. And Murphy says it's like a mirror. You know, he feels like he could walk on it. Jim thinks how he's always wanted to just wade in the reflecting pool. But no, not Jim Dial. <laughs> People would stare. What would they think? And he turns to Murphy and she's smiling. What would they think? that you've gone nuts or that you were feeling a little passionate about the water. Mm -hmm. To which Jim says, last one in is a rotten egg. And Murphy goes, you're on. So they take their shoes off and we don't see them jump in the water. Obviously, we only see the stairs, the steps. Murphy gets a head start. Jim says that it isn't fair because he has a knot in his shoe. And then all of a sudden, they're off camera and we hear Murphy go, 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 go. And Jim's saying, cannonball. <laughs> and then just splash. And then the episode ends. On a lone shoe. And my obsession with Murphy Brown began. No. Um, Fair. I kind of see why this show, this episode probably like made me want to start watching. It's such mm -hmm. a great combination of comedy and drama. It's based a lot on character. And I wonder if I was confused at the time. I don't know like how long it took me to get into it. Because it is very character based considering it was the first one that I saw. Yeah. Um, but I want, I want to think that as a kid, I was like, oh, this made, this moved me and made me laugh. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful episode. Um, before we close out, I just want to read, uh, we had talked about this uh, together before we recorded, but um, in the book, the uh, Murphy Brown Anatomy of a Sitcom book that we talk about all the time, uh, there's a great section about Charlie Kimbrough's backstory for Jim. Um, I won't read all of it because it is extensive and wonderful. And I, Oh, definitely recommend getting the book because it's beautiful. And we'll touch on other things later. Yeah. Um, but what I love is that, so I'm just going to read a, a little bit of it. Jim's feelings are very near the surface. He is easily offended. He is very sentimental, more of a softy than he would ever admit. He worshipped his father. In college, he started to smoke a pipe and he decided on scotch and water as his lifetime drink because his father drank scotch and water. Manly things would be his choice from a very early age. Most sports are boys' games, but a golf is a man's game, so he would be a golfer. He probably smoked until his wife Doris forced him to give it up because smoking 
is what other manly journalists do. Jim's background was a very well-to-do conservative Republican. His father was a stockbroker in Chicago, and Jim grew up in the suburb of Winnetka, going to Dartmouth as his father had done before him. Then suddenly, his father died of a heart attack, and they found out that his personal affairs were chaotic, although he had been a wonderful businessman. He was one of those excellent businessmen who left his domestic affairs in absolute shambles. The shoemaker's children go unshod, you know. So the family had very little money left. They had to sell the house and move to an apartment. He couldn't go back to Dartmouth. So when the Korean War broke out, he decided to volunteer, planning to take advantage of the GI Bill and finish his education after service in the armed forces. Now, Jim is something of a liberal, in common with Murphy, although he is not demonstrative about it. As Charlie puts it, quote, Jim is very noncommittal politically, just as many practicing journalists are, but he's probably more liberal than his dress code or his general background would indicate. Now, for those who aren't actors, I think it's important to say that very often an actor's backstory is not necessarily incorporated into this show. Yeah. And this is, this is, this book's from 1990. Mm-hmm. That being said, I don't think anything really in that has been, um, you know, um, contradicted. And I, what I love about this backstory is that it really fits to me that Jim losing his father at an early age would have a sort of heightened sense of responsibility mm-hmm. because he had to t- take it on at a very early age. Yeah. And he had to change his entire trajectory in life. Yeah. Like it wasn't just an added sense of responsibility. He had to drop out of college. He had to look at the war. Like he, all these things that were taken for granted as far as the way his life was supposed to go, completely changed. Yeah. And and this understanding of what is right mm-hmm. and what is wrong and the rules of things, and that's just the way it is. It fits into Jim for me, and I, I think it's really beautiful, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't remember that from the mm-hmm. book. And so it's really given me sort of a new sense of Jim as we go through the series that I, um, it fits. Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, a little ending of this section is, it says, his description of his character is so full, so carefully thought out, and above all, so plausible to those of us who have seen Jim Dial, that it really does invest the character with a believable past, at least for those lucky enough to hear Charles Kimbrough sketch it in. As the series has developed, Jim has become more and more Murphy's friend. He admired her from the beginning and was, res- and was responsible for her being hired. She never forgets this. But as he has come to know her, his admiration has grown. One of their most poignant moments together comes in Roasted, in the final scene on the Lincoln Memorial steps, as he confesses his sense of failure in life and his increasing sense of his own mortality. It is a constant theme with him and darkens the colors of his portrait. It is combined and partially offset by his more comic tendency toward long anecdotes, which are exasperating to his cohorts. Yeah, I was looking for some articles or information about this episode or if it had been discussed. And I I found a couple of articles either at the end of season one or the early part of season two when the writers would have just sort of been talking about ideas in the writer's room Mm -hmm. or working on the first couple episodes. And something interesting that Diane said was originally this might have been when we first met Doris. Mm-hmm. Also, I found out, which I'd love to ask Diane at some point, that they also had an idea for season two where they wanted to have Murphy literally interview like a real journalist, like someone real. And it would mm-hmm. be an interview in real time because Candace Bergen had been a journalist and she could take it and that they wouldn't script the other side of it. Yeah. And they never did that. And that sounds fascinating. Mm-hmm. And as we have spoken about on the show before, there are certain episodes that actors submit for Emmy consideration. This was one of them for Charles Kimbrough, including Anchors Away, which is an mm-hmm. episode we have already spoken about. And then 
later on in season two, an episode called On the Road Again, which mm-hmm. is another great sort of gym-centric episode. Mm. Uh, he had a good submission package this season. Both of us wanted to talk to you guys because we're not sure if you know that we have a Patreon now. We do. Patreon is so important to, especially to podcasters like us who are who are doing this uh, with our own time and uh, our own efforts. We're paying for things like studio space so that we can literally record. So we literally mm-hmm. can't do the podcast without you. So if you'd like to become a member of our Patreon or give a one-time donation, uh, you can go to murphybrownpod.com slash donate. And we'll see you next time for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. (laughs) 